The Echo Chamber, brought to you by The Homes Report and produced by the international broadcast specialist, Marketeers. Sponsored by The Bullet Group, putting you in tomorrow's conversations today. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Echo Chamber podcast. This is Arun Sudhaman, and we're joined by Paul Holmes, founder of The Holmes Report, 18 years ago, I believe. Is that right? Was it 18 years ago? Sounds about right. So it'll be the 20th anniversary in two years, if my maths is correct. Spectacular. We should, um, we should maybe have a party. Well, they say PR people don't have a head for numbers. <laughs> I'm not a PR person, but anyway, <laughs> anyway, let's move on to more, more germane topics. Um, what are we to make of Facebook, Paul? You wrote a very, not, I was going to say very long, but actually it wasn't that long. It was very good, a very good analysis of Facebook's latest reputation crisis, or, or perhaps a continuation of its existing and indeed existential reputation crisis. Um, this detailing its work with a public affairs firm called Definers, which uh, apparently created and distributed fake news, um, attacked uh, Facebook's rivals, notably Apple, without disclosing that they were working for Facebook. And perhaps most contentiously of all went after George Soros um, using some tropes that I think are widely accepted as being anti-Semitic. Um, and it seems like Facebook is not willing to accept too much blame for its actions. Uh, they have released a memo um, timed to co coincide with Thanksgiving, uh, where Elliot Schrag, the outgoing communications VP, public policy VP, uh, has taken the blame. Um, so let's start there, if you don't mind. What do you make of the uh, of the Schrag defense? Well, gee, um, if I was a cynic, I'd say I hope he managed to negotiate a couple of extra zeros on his severance package for falling on his sword. Um, because it's certainly I mean, the optics, both the timing and the fact that somebody was already leaving Facebook um, took the responsibility for this um, certainly aren't good. And I think at this point, um, it is reasonable for anyone to make the most cynical assumption about what Facebook is doing. Um, they've lost the right to any benefit of the doubt, it seems to me. And so, um, you know, my, my guess is that having thrown the comms team under the bus, uh, with the initial statement that uh, uh, Mark Zuckerberg made uh, to reporters. Um, I, you know, I think this is just a continuation of that. Um, but whatever Elliot's role might have been in this whole scenario, it's pretty clear that Facebook's problems in public relations and behavior go far beyond one individual in the comms team. Right, it does look a little convenient. Um, there's a, a, your story raises a lot of issues that I think are 
of real importance to the way public relations is practiced um, in the year 2018. And, and we'll get to some of them. Um, but coming back to the Elliot Schrag memo, um, there's a number of things that are interesting in that alone. And, and one of them is this kind of strange coda to the memo where Sheryl Sandberg, Facebook's chief operating officer, also, of course, under a lot of pressure because the comms team reports to her. She, I think, essentially congratulates Elliot Schrag on his confession and uh, just reiterates that it had very little to do with her. What did you make of that? Um, I, I mean, it, it seemed... Um, I, I don't want to contradict myself by, by saying I don't want to make the worst assumptions. I would hope that it wasn't a thank you for taking the hit for me, um, Coda, because that, that would just be a dumb thing to do. But on the other hand, um, there are so many dumb things about this um, that, um, you know, this is not the work of a, a corporation that is thinking strategically about communications. Um, and and it, it sort of came at the same time that, that Cheryl admitted that, um, that, that I can't remember exactly how she put it, but but that a lot of stuff about definers had crossed her desk. Um, I a guess small, the, a small amount. I think she said some materials, not much. Yeah. Okay. yeah. I think the claim is yeah, I didn't didn't read it or didn't remember it or, or um, but that that just seems highly improbable to me. And what about the Schrag, um defense of mission creep? As I think. You know, as a charitable interpretation of, of why how how Facebook ended up here. Yeah, look, um, I'm not denying that that can happen, right? I mean, the, the the line appears to be we we hired them initially just to sort of do some background checks, um, and it sort of and and it you know it started as a one-on-one -on -one relationship, and then it it ended up with multiple points of contact within the corporate communications team, and multiple points of contact within definers, and they were doing far more for us than any any one person realized. But look, some you know, I, I, I'm assuming that that despite its um, ideological roots. Um, Definers doesn't go around doing the do, doing doing this stuff for free. Somebody, um, you know, somebody directed them to put these stories on the fake news site that Definers runs as a sort of side hobby. Um, somebody instructed them um, to try and pitch the the George Soros story. Um, the defense of which, and you know, we should get into the specifics of that, the defense of which is, to call it flimsy would be a, a, a huge sort of charitable mischaracterization. Um, you know, somebody in Facebook directed the firm to do this stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and even if they didn't, I think they have to take responsibility for it, do they not? I mean, they hired the firm. Yeah, and um, it, it appears to be no secret among um, among definers' clients, both you know what it, what its approach is, and that you know it 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 spends as much time um, 
again, let's be charitable and call it depositioning competitors as it does, um, as it does sort of promoting the, the company that, that hired it. And this is the sort of stuff that, you know, when I, when I go to, to sort of developing markets in Eastern Europe and Latin America, uh, reputable PR firms there tell me that they are, you know, that, that the industry is working hard to get away from. Um, that going on in America is um, it, it's pretty extraordinary. In a sense, yeah. I mean, definitely, I, I see it here in China. It's it's, it's an issue. You know, they, they call it black PR. Um, yeah. But I see some people in America arguing that this kind of public relations is is completely legitimate to go after your rivals. Um, you know, and and Elliot Schrage does you know defends defends it all under the kind of I suppose the, the phrase he uses is opposition research. This isn't opposition research. This is actively going after rivals. Um, why is that wrong? Okay. So first of all, there's, there's absolutely no problem, um, in, in, in my opinion, with, with opposition research. And, and then, of course, the question is, well, if it's legitimate to do your opposition research, is it legitimate to, to use opposition research? And again, if you, if you discover something um, that is genuinely damning about an opponent, um, then it's, it's certainly within your rights to draw that to people's attention. And I, I don't have a problem with any of that. What, but what, what I think happened here, what, what appears to have happened based on the Times reporting and subsequent reporting, is much more than that. Um, first of all, the Soros stuff. Um, you know, Elliot, Elliot Schrage says in his statement that they wanted to find out, after, after Soros spoke out against um, Facebook, um, and its role in the fake news scandals of 2016. Um, Facebook fairly legitimately wanted to find out whether Soros had a financial interest in doing so. There's absolutely nothing that, that, that has been published by definers or anybody else to suggest that was the case, to suggest that Soros was anything other than a concerned citizen um, who found Russian interference in the American elections um, to be uh, to to be troublesome, um, and um, you know one would expect that of somebody associated with the Democratic Party, and I I don't see any problem with that, and so it seems to me, and, and there were by the way plenty of other people who seem to have had a much more active role in financing um, the the anti Facebook movement. Um, Look, I, I, I simply don't believe that Facebook selected Soros as the target of this, um, this campaign um, for, for any reason, except that he was pre-demonized by people on the right, um, and particularly people on the white supremacist alt-right, um, and that he would therefore make a juicy target and a, and a big fat distraction. Now, whether that makes Facebook anti-Semitic or whether it makes Facebook simply willing to partner with anti-Semites in order to get its point across or in order to score a point, um, I don't think it makes much difference, honestly. I think he, both are equally reprehensible. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, um, you know, again, if you, if you find something that is legitimately 
um, troubling about your opponent, then that's one thing. The fact that that they pitched all of these sort of flimsy stories to to reporters and got nobody to bite, and then ended up um, you know publishing it on this this fake news site um, in the hope that it would be picked up by you know Breitbart and 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 others Daily Caller and and others on the far right and sort of mushroom into a legitimate story. Um, suggests that there was absolutely nothing there, um, that this was the only route they could go. And finally, you know, and, and this, is, this is to me the critical point, is just because you can do something, just because, um, you know, something is a legitimate thing to do, doesn't make it a smart thing to do. And this was dumb, dumb, dumb. This was always going to end up on the front page of the New York Times or the Washington Post or on CNN or somewhere else. And it was always going to be with the headline, Facebook tries to smear opponents. And why would, you know, first of all, why, why would you do that? You know, it's not, like, it's not like anybody who's been in public relations for more than 20 minutes thought that they could get away with this and that headline wouldn't one day appear. That would be absurd. So it, it's just not smart. And then, you know, this, I, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm turning my answer into a rant. No, it's good. Um, but, but um, and, and then there's the whole question of, you know, why, what's the benefit to Facebook of, of going after Google and Apple and others in the same kind of space that it's in? It's, it's not as if, I mean, the, the objective here surely is to head off regulatory intervention. And, and the way you do that is by saying our industry is full of good guys, not our industry is full of bad guys. You say our industry is capable of self-policing. I mean, I made this point in the story, but this is why, you know, every time there's a, an air crash, you don't get American and Delta and United going after Southwest and saying, hey, they're unsafe, shut them down. Um, that just destroys confidence in, in the sector. And... You know, so you end up punishing yourself. That just seems absurd. Yeah, you make the point in your analysis that this kind of technique, which is really, I guess, um, a transplant from the political world, um, but it's it's a zero sum game, and it just doesn't work in business. Right. No, uh, I think. Look, I think there are lots of legitimate lessons that corporate communicators have learned over the last decade or so, probably longer than that, from political campaigns. Um, you know, political campaigns start out with, a, with a, a, a sort of clear objective. They are highly integrated. They are driven by research and data and all of that fun stuff. Um, and, you know, the more of that makes its way into... Um, the, the corporate arena, uh, the happier I'll be. But the reality is that politics and business are not analogous and, um, and, and acting as if they are. Um, and, you know, taking the, the more tribal techniques of politics and trying to transplant them into the corporate world makes no sense. First of all, first of all, Customers and stakeholders are not as tribal 
as political parties are. You don't have the same affinity for Amazon that you do for your liberal or conservative ideology. You don't have the same affinity for Facebook that you do for, you know, Manchester United or the Dallas Cowboys or, you know, the Indian cricket team. <clears throat> And so, you know, trying to, trying to transport political techniques that work in that tribal, and as you say, zero-sum environment, um, is, is fatally flawed. Mm. How important here, or is this just a minor detail? Uh, TechCrunch published some of the pictures they'd received from definers, none of which, um, sorry, m many of which attacked companies, I think in particular Apple, in some cases Google, none of which disclosed that they were working on behalf of Facebook. I mean, is that something that, that firms should, should always be doing when they are perhaps using opposition research? Um, <clears throat> first of all, yes. Um, you know, I, again, I think, I think hide, trying, to, trying to hide behind a veil while doing this, um, is, is first of all, you know, it's not going to work long term. Um, and secondly, um, it, it's, it's a red, it's got to be a red flag to, to media, which is why in, at the end of the day, none of these stories ended up getting, getting picked up by, you know, legitimate media. Um, it, 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 it's, it's just not, it's just not smart. Um, and and again, you know, I I question the I question the logic to begin with. Sure, yeah, no, I think that's fair. Um, what does this say about? Uh, I mean, I don't want to tar the whole tech industry um, with the same brush, but the truth is that Definers has found uh, plenty of business on the West Coast. I think. Um, there's a, there's a follow-up New York Times article, and not just the New York Times, but several outlets have, have published details of Definers' clients. I think Qualcomm is a key one, uh, Lyft, Lime, Juul. What does it say about the technology industry that they are so willing to work with a firm like Definers? So it seems to me, it seems to me to be the kind of naivety that thinks it's being really smart and cynical, you know, it's, um, somebody, somebody in the tech sector thinks this is terribly clever and sophisticated and sort of what big boys do. When in, when in reality, it's the opposite. Um, and look, the, 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 the history of the technology sector and public relations, um, and, and look, I'm, I, I, I'm, I'm painting with an extremely broad brush here, and obviously there are examples. Um, there are exceptions. Um, but the history of technology and public relations is that you do whatever you feel like doing until suddenly somebody calls you on it. And then you realize that this stuff could actually start to impact your business. Um, so you've, and, and then the first instinct is, the first instinct is that okay, how do we how do we get away with this without actually changing anything about how how we behave? And unfortunately, if you're not you know if you're not a sophisticated user of public relations, um, if your entire sort of public relations public affairs staff 
comes from a political background, for example, because you think that's what you do when, the, when you have regulatory challenges in particular. Um, you know, then, then you end up doing, doing things that are um, fatally flawed. And look, the, the, you know, whether it was Microsoft and antitrust 20 years ago, uh, or whether it's Facebook and, and the crisis of confidence that it is facing and exacerbating today, um, you know, the, the, the playbook is almost exactly the same. And, I, you know, I don't know, whether it, I, I don't know whether it has its roots in this, you know, the, the product and the technology is everything. And as long as we're creating great machines or great, um, you know, great networks or, or you know, um, great apps, everything is going to be, uh, you know, everything else is just an afterthought. And why should we bother ourselves with that? Um, whether it's the arrogance of success, you know, where we're entrepreneurs and we're driving the economy and people should just leave us alone. Um, or whether it's the fact that, the, you know, an alarming number of people in Silicon Valley uh, read, read and Rand as many of us do when they were 14, but alarmingly still believe, believe it into their 20s. Um, I have no idea, but, um, you, you know, but there's something in the air in, in, in the technology sector that, uh, that, that, that warps the thinking on this stuff. Mm. The fact that the playbook hasn't changed, though, does that suggest that there actually aren't enough, there isn't enough of a penalty for this kind of behavior? Um, yeah, it, it was interesting. I mean, you, you, you described this crisis as, as existential for, for Facebook at the beginning of the this conversation but it isn't and, really and and well and I, I i wondered about that i mean i i is it um i i think that um i i think that this is one of those situations where you know first of all zuckerberg and sandberg um, appear to be, you know, appear to be taking this seriously. Um, in that, you know, they're spending a lot of money to um, to fight it, uh, or rather, to pretend that they're fighting it. Um, I'm talking about the fake news thing now. But they they take that as a threat to their reputation quite seriously. Look, in America, I think um, because of the First Amendment and 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 because of a, a sort of broad pro-business environment. It's unlikely that this is going to be the straw that breaks the camel's back as far as Facebook and other so social media companies are concerned. Um, but in European markets, for example, there is much less reluctance to regulate what social media can and can't do. Um, and it's, it's certainly conceivable um, that you will see legislation in Europe um, that either, you know, seriously restricts the kind of people who can advertise um, on, on, on Facebook or the kind of ads that get through to people on, in Europe on Facebook, um, or that, you know, that it, that it becomes regulated in the way that many media are um, in, in Europe, um, which goes quite a long way beyond what you would expect to see in the US. Um, and, and I mean, at some point, you would think at some point people have to lose confidence 
in you know because it's not just um, it's it's not just the fake news. Um, it's not it's not just that. It's it's privacy concerns. It's 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 a cavalier attitude towards people's data um, and, and security. Um, of course, and you know this this stuff this stuff does matter. Mm. I mean, and that's what they're really afraid of, right? The, the regulation, and in particular, regulation that um, regulates them as a media company. Yeah, those two yeah. platform. Um, Okay. Yes, now, that, I mean that is you know that's the most realistic um, possibility. But you know, one, 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 so uh, I, it's a little sad that you mentioned Lyft earlier um, in in the context of uh, of definers, um, because you know to a certain extent Lyft came along when Uber was very well established and sort of positioned itself as um, you know. Where the where the good guys in the ride sharing, you know, where the guys who are, who don't have Travis Kalanick as a CEO, uh, you know, and and I mean, is it too late for somebody to come along and say we're Facebook, but we're not going to screw you over, and we are going to um, police our network the way it should be policed? Well, um, that was Mark you know, Miller's point, I think, in at our conference in DC. You know, he I think he said one of the potential options here is a new network um, that does things properly. I mean, to me, it seems unlikely, but he seemed to think this was a, a possibility, a genuine possibility, uh, and not yeah, as difficult well, as, as one might think. I wouldn't discount it. I mean, you know, <laughs> the only thing I'd say is once, once it's up and established, Facebook will probably buy it. But... Um, <laughs> You know, but but I mean, if you think about it, the, there are um, you know dif d differently oriented net networks um, that have come along since Facebook established itself and carved out a niche for themselves. Um, and you know, it, I, I mean, one of the one of the things that Facebook has done here, right, is it it, it has clearly aligned itself with whether you think it's conservatism or the far right in America. I mean, this whole campaign was designed to get people on the far right um, defending Facebook, right? That's the only reason you use George Soros. Um, so Facebook is, has sort of made it clear that that's its core demographic. Those are the people it wants on Facebook. So you know, if you started a if you started a social network for for liberals, why why wouldn't they? Um, you know, why wouldn't they consider moving? Um, right. I mean, I, so <laughs> you know, I, I I don't think we should discount the possibility entirely. Sure. Um, one more thing I wanted to ask you about, um, NTK, is that what they're called? NTK, the fake, it really sounds like a North Korean, doesn't it? Isn't it <laughs> that was my reaction too. Yeah, isn't it a North Korean media agency? So NTK is, is this, con, con, let's just, let's charitably call it a conservative news media organization, appears to share um, similar resources and people um, as definers. Um, but but uh, 
they have um, they have denied that that these stories were placed and that they just they ran them as any editorial organization would do in choosing to run stories, um, which seems a little dubious. But leaving that aside, the 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 bigger issue here. I would think is that you have, and you know, this is this comes back to the whole question of fake news. You have these organisations that are running these stories, um, and it's it's difficult to ascertain who they are and why they're running them. Um, do do you feel that perhaps, I mean, how you know, how do you, I guess, address that if the algorithm is not going to address it, which which seems to be clear by now. I think Facebook's, I think I saw somewhere Facebook's top ten stories last last week were all kind of really heavily driven by these, some of these kind of right-wing sites. Um, what, what steps are there really, but beyond actually asking these news organizations or these media organizations to disclose where their funding is coming from? Yeah, um, look, I, it, it's, a, it's a really interesting question for me because like I, I, I grew up at a time and in an era where um, it was it was pretty clear where what what legitimate media was and looked like, and what you know what propaganda looked like, and we have somehow, as a society, lost the ability to make that distinction, um, or. You know, we have decided that we don't want to make that distinction, that if a story makes us feel good about our um, ideology or our views, it's credible. And if it doesn't make us feel good, if it contradicts something we believe, then it's not credible. Um, that just seems to me to be unsustainable. And I'd like to, I'd like to believe that, um, that that's still a minority of Americans. And by the way, I think it is, right? I mean, I think, look, there are lots of people, there are lots of people sharing these, these stories, but it's not everybody. It's, it is contained. It is, um, it, it is a sort of fairly select group of people. Um, it's perhaps broader than we would like, but, um, but it's not universal. And look, I just think we need, um, we need to start very early in schools with media literacy training, um, with, um, with critical thinking skills. You know, I, I, I've said this before, but you know, this idea that, um, that there are millions of people out there voting illegally, um, as our, our president suggests, um, you know, going to the voting booth, going, going outside, putting on a Groucho Marx mustache, and walking back in two minutes later to vote again. I mean, if you give that even 30 seconds of critical thinking, it becomes absurd, right? Um, why have we never caught even one of these people? Um, you know, why, why um, when the Republican Party claims to know that it's going on, have they never done anything to, 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 to prevent it? Why? Why aren't they doing it themselves if it's so easy? I mean, the whole thing is just ridiculous. Um, and yet there are millions of people who believe it's happening. Um, uh, you know, I think, I think critical thinking skills, media literacy, um, these things have to become far more, um, far more broadly taught um, than yeah. right now. 
you made the point but that's that, a very long-term solution i mean yeah you made the point you, you know you grew up in a in an era when it was clear what was news and what was propaganda but i mean you grew up in the uk in the uk the, the media as in many countries is in many cases newspapers are owned privately i mean the daily mail um was owned by by, by lord rothermere who was a you know, a Nazi sympathizer and that influenced that newspaper stance. Um, it's not always that clear cut, is it? Even with these so-called um, mainstream publications. I mean, we see that most obviously, I think, with, with News Corp. Um, is it as simple as saying, well, you know, we, we just need to be able to, to tell which outlets are credible and, and, and which are not? Yeah, again, even growing up in the UK, where I think we, you know, we we were all aware that, that you know, the, the Daily Mail was a sort of socially and fiscally conservative publication. The Daily Mirror was sort of centre left. Um, the Guardian was, you know, sort of uh, upper class progressive. What <laughs> you know, whatever. I mean, the you 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 knew where these publications were coming from but at the same time you know there was a there was a clear difference between the opinion pages and the news pages i mean yes the news pages would give different emphasis to different um to different stories um but but the news pages were factual for the most part um as, as they still are in most legitimate media um what what changed in the UK was, you know, the, the Daily Mail started running all of these sort of half-true stories about the EU. Um, your bananas can only be so bendy or whatever, which was just nonsense. Um, as news stories. Um, and, um, and, and, you know, you have publications in the, the US now that do the same thing, um, where... Um, was you know complete fake stories have become news rather than opinion um, and um, you know I, look we, <laughs> there are people a lot smarter than 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 me um, maybe even smarter than you um, who are spending their whole lives thinking about how to how to combat this and haven't come up with anything yet so I suspect it's not a problem that we're going to solve on a podcast no indeed okay well paul thank you so much um i would of course recommend everyone reads uh the facebook analysis not least because you have to pay for it so yes um, that would be um, yeah something to bear in mind but if you are a premium content subscriber then it's all yours and you can read it um and we'll get you back on the show soon paul thank you very much okay thank you i'm now joined by holmes report Associate Editor Emia, Maya Quinsk-Sims. Maya, how are you? I'm good, thank you, Irene. How are you? How's Hong Kong looking today? Hong Kong's great. It's, uh, it's, a, it's very nice weather. It's like 22 degrees. Um, yeah, it's Thanksgiving. So as usual, all non-Americans give thanks for the fact that America has shut down. Um, it's just this kind of blissful peace. Yeah. No, it's lovely and quiet actually. I mean, I have yeah. I have free fog over here, as I said. So um, it's 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 less nice, but it is noticeably quiet. Although I I've got a million Black Friday spam emails in my yeah. inbox, which is just 
hugely irritating but anyway yeah so what should we talk about let's start with our fabulous creative index there's some interesting stuff in that this year i thought um yeah so it's year seven wow (laughs) does Um, that make you feel old seven years of the creative i feel old anyway um it's it's interesting isn't it when i launched it it really was just like a bit of a laugh um and it has become i think more of a benchmark these days i think Mm. agencies uh and companies take it quite seriously i mean it's a pretty rigorous methodology we have now and a shout out to kathy wallace who um crunches the numbers for us um and this year ended up with some interesting results, as you said. I mean, Weber Shandwick keep top spot uh, on the agency table. So it analyzes entries and winners from more than 25 PR, digital and marketing awards programs from around the world over a 12 month period, ending with the 2018 Global Sabre Awards. Um, The formula takes into account the expansion of PR work across multiple categories at shows such as the Cannes Lions and the methodology favors agencies designated um, for idea idea creation. Um, And with all that said, Weber Shandwick took top spot again, probably because it just seems to do so well globally. You know, it just has a really solid showing across all regions. Um, I had that brilliant Iceland campaign, but it wasn't just that. It was, you know, across the world. There's what's the other ones we've named ActionAid. Uh, Actually, Feve. yep. Uh, Feve, uh, yeah, GSK, the Mattel y- Uno, or is it Uno? I can't remember. I think you pronounced Uno. it. Um, I think it's on Uno. Stage. Okay. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. McDonald's, Royal Caribbean. There's, there's a lot. There's, a, they just win a lot of awards. Weber. They're like a, an awards machine. It must be disappointing for some of their rivals. I think no, notably Edelman, because Edelman dropped one spot from third to fourth, and I think Edelman's whole thing has really been to try and deliver that award-winning work and they're doing great work let's not let's not um uh suggest otherwise but but just on this particular index um not ranking as high uh as of course weber burson kona wolf came in new entry at number two i mean they benefit from basically two agencies uh to yeah, become one well, the words it? of, uh, of the spice girls sorry it's it's encouraging, I think, that um yeah. nice Spice Girls reference. It's encouraging that BCW are in second spot. And I know it's a merger of two agencies, but actually they, it could have it could have been otherwise. You know, it could have they could have had a year where they were nowhere as a result of the merger. Oh, easily, so yeah, I easily. That, I think that bodes really well actually for, for them as yeah. a business going forward. Yeah, what was interesting about BCW is they scored really highly across Asia and EMEA. So very well in India good in Europe, um, where both Kona Wolf and Burson did well, good in the Middle East where Burson is strong. Um, Ogilvy third, Ogilvy always did pretty well on this. Um, they were helped by Fearless Girl, uh, which came top of the campaign ranking, even though I think Ogilvy only really played a supporting role on, on Fearless Girl, but that they did get some points for that. Um, a very strong campaign out of South Africa, Life Uncensored for Pfizer helped Ogilvy as well. Um, In terms of the overall rankings, I I think probably the only other really notable result is Ad Factors coming in 10th, 
um, despite not really being a global network, they, they've had a, a remarkable year in terms of awards, some great campaigns, um, winning at the Global Sabres and at Asia shows for clients like Godrej and ICICI. Um, so they've done well. I wasn't on the ranking, but in 11th place was Olsen Engage. Um, yeah, which is kind of amazing given that, uh, you know, they don't, they're more, you're more likely to expect them on the weighted table. So we have, as you know, we have a weighted table where we basically um, use a points per head calculation. So we weight the agency scores according to staff size. So I think this is the more interesting table, this one. Yeah. Yeah, you and, and all of the agencies on it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> because this is, you know, this whole pound for pound, who's the most creative thing is really interesting, especially, especially, I mean, we've got the global table and then we split it out geographically. Yeah. This Australian boutique campaign lab, I don't, mm. I don't know that they're kind of like, they've like massively at the top and there's only eight of them. Yeah. So that's the thing with the, with the weighted table, it, it, I, th I mean, I think it is a pretty accurate gauge for um, kind of pound for pound creativity, taking into account an agency size. When you're eight people, though, I mean, the odds are really in your favor. So they won. Um, they didn't quite, you know, they didn't have the volume of award wins of, say, an Olsen Engage. Um, but Olsen Engage is like 150 people now, let's say. Um, Campaign Lab is eight. Campaign Lab won, I think. I think they were shortlisted for eight awards last year and they won six of them. Um, so yeah, I did not know them either. Uh, I'm actually meeting them next week. They're coming into Hong Kong. So uh, yeah, they, they've, done, they've done remarkably well. And they, they knocked uh, Tin Man and Unity, who came first and third last year, Campaign Lab knocked them off the kind of top of the table. Um, Tin Man again, really impressive because they came first last year and demonstrating, you know, it wasn't a flash in the pan. Yeah, absolutely. And they're still only four years old as well. I mean, there's, right. there's obviously, there's, there's, it's literally just an office of creative squirrels there. That's, that's yeah. all they're doing. They've just yeah. been super creative and turning out great brand work. So um, they'll be on there for some time, I would imagine. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, there's some, there's some good names on there. All the ones we would expect, certainly in EMEA with uh, um, Hope and Glory and W. Mm -hmm. um, Unity. Uh, Unity, Unity as well, has now been work. yeah. Unity's third spot. They've ranked in the top three for six of the past seven years, including a first place spot on four occasions. Of course, the big question, and I'm sure um, I'm sure the agency will take this in the spirit in which it's intended, is to see whether they will continue to rank um, in that kind of top three. Uh, you know, despite the, the the leadership upheaval over there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because obviously all the these awards are actually for 2017 campaigns, basically, just going into the beginning of 2018. Correct. So, They're all for um, work. We're, we're yeah, yeah, they are all for work produced, in, pretty much produced in 2017. Correct. Um, and then, yeah, some, some other interesting results on the weighted table. I think AKA coming in from Singapore and Atmosphere, atmosphere from South Africa. Nucleus doing really well out of Norway. Um, Echo from Myanmar, so that's the first Burmese agency to ever rank on the Creative Index. Um, as you mentioned, W from the UK and Milton from Finland. 
so a lot of geographic diversity. Um, as you said, we did the regional rankings because I think it's probably more fair to rank these agencies against their peer group. Because, um, you know, I, I feel like an Olsen Engage should be ranked against US agencies because, you know, even on a pound for pound table, when you're an Olsen Engage, you're a lot bigger than a campaign lab. So you kind of have to take that into account. Um, so we've got the regional rankings and the campaign rankings, uh, like we said, Fearless Girl came top. I think everyone will be quite familiar with the names on, on this list. Palau Pledge in a third blood normal for too cool for plastics vix touch of care don't tell marty um aflax giant duck campaign um so kind of all all well-known campaigns um once again i think demonstrating the uh the way that brand purpose has become a key ingredient in award-winning work that's oh, still huge isn't it yeah so huge, especially and uh, we uh, the the two the two call for plastics campaign that Weber did with with Iceland. I mean, obviously this came out quite conveniently the week after mm. um, the week after we've had the big Iceland Christmas ad um, thing in the UK. Yeah, uh, with the which was supposedly banned their ad about rainforest deforestation by palm oil palm oil producers. Yeah. Um, so they've hit the headlines again with this kind of campaign. And there's obviously lots of questions about whether, um, as I said in my analysis piece, lots of questions about whether this is just a really cynical PR stunt because they need they need damn well it was going to get banned because it was a, a rebadged Greenpeace cartoon about this orangutan uh, uh, lost its habitat, or whether this is just actually perfectly in tune with their brand values. I think it's probably uh, a bit of both. I think we yeah, I think your analysis. They knew it would be banned, and um... yeah, and it's a very good. Um, well, it's it's both a worthy cause and a really good public relations stunt, I suppose. Um, and yeah, I think your absolutely. analysis was really um, captured this very well. The kind of different issues at play here. Um, yeah. The interesting thing, I think, is uh, Iceland, of course, as you mentioned, coming off the Too Cool for Plastics campaign. So it's, it's kind of taking on that kind of campaigning uh, mantle. Um, yeah, proper, uh, proper activism, brand activism mm. at play here. And it said, you know, the, uh, you know as, I, as I said in my piece, and um, uh, another nice coincidence, we're clearly tuned into the universe of stuff around Iceland at the moment. Richard Walker, the boss, was also on our innovator 25 for, for a mere at the same mm -hmm. time and he he's really I mean, he's the son of the founder and he's really uh, I mean uh, Weber Shamwick when I approached them and said who who's behind the two corporate plastics campaign I want to put them on the innovator ranking mm -hmm. they're just like it's Richard he's just driving everything and it's really interesting that that's coming from the CEO who's not you know he's not a creative he's not uh, you know, he's got a background as an accountant, pretty much. And he's just absolutely running with this, not just positioning, but what Iceland stands for. It comes back to this, uh, you know, the actual brand purpose. I mean, whether or not you shop there, uh, it's like, well, this they're doing, they're trying, given that they are a supermarket, they are trying to do their best to be, you know, uh, to, to do good in the world rather than harm, which is, um, and that's all been driven by the CEO and then supported massively by his, 
PR and marketing um, teams. But um, yeah, really interesting what's going on there. They're definitely ones to watch. I mean, the trouble with the trouble with sticking your head above the parapet is also that he's now open to more scrutiny. I guess so. You know, that's mm. that doesn't always pay off. Um, uh, as we've seen with the whole, you know, Nissan thing this mm. week uh, in Japan, um, there's a, you know, you can, you can have too much of a profile, I guess. Mm. What's your take on that whole board sacking um, Carlos Goen this week after his, uh, after he was arrested for alleged, I have to say alleged financial misconduct? Yeah. Um, so we just coming back to Iceland really quickly, I, I, I just think what's interesting as well about them is, you know, you mentioned it, it's being driven by the CEO. And I, I do kind of wonder that whether it, that's the way it, it's going to have to be if, if it's yeah. going to be real across an organization. So it's not just maybe um, a campaign dreamed up by the marketing department, but something that actually is, is being driven by you know, the, the, the overall leader of a company. Yeah, from um, the top down, this is what we stand for and we're gonna, we're gonna shout it and be proud about it. Yeah, yeah. No, and absolutely. the other thing I'd say about Iceland is they've come a long way from Kerry Katona. <laughs> they have, they have come such a long way from mum's really gone to Iceland. Yeah, no, they have, they have, yeah. And the final and it, thing I'd say about Iceland is it seems to have sparked a backlash to the backlash. So you had this, um, this outpouring of support for the ad and, and, and people kind of, um, I think it was all these petitions to, to, uh, to the, the regulator, which is uh, Clearcast. Um, and then you've kind of got this backlash to that, which is all these people saying, well, actually, I'm going to keep on using palm oil. And I love palm oil. Um, have you seen that? Uh, no. Is yeah, this a thing? Yeah, it's a thing. It's a thing. It's all. It's. It's. I've seen it on my Facebook. Loads of people saying, "Well, I'm not going to boycott palm oil, and here's why." And wow. uh, yeah, so I think this is the sort of backlash economy in which we live. <laughs> the backlash to the backlash to the backlash. Yeah, Everything's yeah. so polarized now, though, isn't it? It's polarized. Or polarized. Polarized. <laughs> <laughs> polarized. Polaroid is still a thing. Is that sort of thing? Yeah, no, it is. Polaroid, it's like what everyone has. Everyone takes a view now. There's like no sitting on the fence and going, "Well, I might do a little bit more research about palm oil." Yes, I'm for. No, I'm against. Exactly. Yeah. The Twitter economy, as well as the backlash. Yeah, and Facebook. So Carlos Ghosn. I wonder if this is a sign of the changing kind of uh, leadership paradigm, to use an awful word. I mean, Carlos Ghosn is very much the kind of, um, I don't want to use the word dictator, but, you know, CEO uh, as um, not quite rock star, but, you know, Mm. centralized power at the top of a business, came in, saved Nissan, uh, then you know, inked the alliance between Nissan and Renault and Mitsubishi and in in the bargain ended up getting paid three salaries and becoming omnipotent uh, with a huge degree of power across three um, big automotive companies. Um, And, you know, for the most part, I don't think there was too much of a suggestion that he was using that power 
in a in a kind of negative manner because uh, you know the general consensus was that he had done very well at these companies. But of course, Maya, with great power comes great responsibility. Comes, <laughs> and uh, in particular, responsibility to ensure that you are beyond suspicion and above mm -hmm. the pale. And when you're getting paid these enormous sums of money, you can't afford any slip-ups. Um, no. As you said, it's alleged that he's underreported his salary by something like 50%. Um, it's, it, the news has come out conveniently timed uh, because I think there's, there was a proposal to, to fully merge Nissan and Renault. And I think many of, of Nissan's leadership were against that, the Japanese leadership. Um, so the timing is, is interesting. Um, interesting is probably a good thing. Yeah, yeah, it is. But, you know, he's been arrested and, he, and now he's, he's, he is gone, To if you'll excuse the pun. Um, uh, yeah, tough, must be a tough week for um, his public relations person, Jonathan Adeshek, friend of the Homes Report, uh, who is probably having a pretty busy week, I would imagine. Yeah, I can imagine he is. But I mean, it sounds like it's all been handled, you know, but in terms of like managing a scandal at the top like that, it doesn't, it, it sounds like it's all been managed pretty well, given that there was clearly huge cock-ups in corporate governments throughout the, yeah, throughout the to allow him to get to the point where he had almost too much authority. Yeah, it's, I'm not sure where you where to attribute blame here apart from Carlos because it is his personal salary right so I mean he did have uh I think there's there's a this, this person Greg Kelly has also been implicated and he's a, he's a, a Nissan employee um and I think he was involved in some way or another um so I don't know if it's if it's correlation or causation you know it is he underreported his salary because he had so much power or the two things just happened at the same time. Um, I think that we were getting to a point where his power though was breeding a certain amount of resentment across not just Nissan, but the other companies as well. And, um, you know, I can imagine he probably wasn't the most consensual uh, leader, right? When you have that much power concentrated in one person. Um, and I do think that model is perhaps changing. Um, towards a, you know, a more d democratized leadership style uh, in, in, in line perhaps with this, you know, with the more kind of you know, dissipated uh, model of, of, of power that we have given yeah. the rise of social media. So I, maybe his time has just passed. Uh, yes, you know, he it, feels, it feels like he belongs to another era of yeah. leadership really now. Yeah, and this perhaps this is an opportunity for these companies. Uh, I hesitate to say one company because they are still separate companies. Although there's all these really weird cross shareholdings, and I don't know what will happen. I mean, that's quite interesting. Is what will happen to the cross shareholdings now? Will they unravel? You know, there's talk of Nissan and Renault going separate ways. That will be interesting to to follow. Mm, um, yeah. So that's say. kind of that's the. That's the one of the big Asian Asian crises of the week. Um, the other one, as you might be aware, is Dolce e Gabbana. Oh gosh, yes. Mm. It, you just want to kind of literally tear your hair out over this one. 
Yeah, I mean, it's, it's unbelievable. In fact, I've just been, it's been kind of dominating my day. I've just been getting messages from people in China kind of all day about it. There's a video. So anyone who's, who's not aware, Dolce & Gabbana came out with this, this really misjudged campaign um, to this video uh, of a Chinese woman uh, trying to eat Italian food with chopsticks and um why 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 did they do this it is i think it has been described as um insensitive racist uh and sexist mm. um, which is what? you know quite something for uh, tick, tick. yeah exactly tick, tick. ticks it's all like, the who signed this off i mean at the very best it's incredibly patronizing yeah. Uh, but at, at worst, it's just you know, it's just downright racist. It's like what it's meant to. Well, they said it's meant to celebrate Chinese culture, mm. uh, but it's kind of. I mean, there was no temperature checking going on here. It's basically PepsiCo all over again, isn't it? It's like who's who signed this off? I can't yeah. believe anyone who's a kind of a a senior comms advisor rather than an advertising creative would have would have looked at this in more than two seconds and gone, yeah, that's a good idea. Well, that's the thing. I think this is the problem with them. I don't want to necessarily suggest it's a problem for the whole fashion industry, but fashion companies in general, I think, often do a lot of this stuff in-house. Um, and they're not the most diverse places, let's be honest. No. Right? And no, I, I think this is the problem here. They didn't... I, I would... You would hope that a team with more diversity on it would have caught this really easily. And... The, the suspicion, I think, is that there just there probably wasn't that level of diversity amongst the people that um, that approved this. Uh, and you know, they, they've it's kind of not just the video because there's also been Stefano Gabbana um, these racist comments that he allegedly made on Instagram, like really crazy stuff that he was coming out with. That's gone viral. He said that they, they're not him. He was hacked. I mean, some people are dubious about that. Um, because yeah, it's quite a sophisticated tone of voice, whoever this hacker has has has, has done. Dolce & Gabbana themselves have said they were hacked because they also kind of doubled down on the, on the campaign on their Instagram. Um, loads of Chinese celebrities have kind of come out and said they'll never they'll never buy or 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 work with Dolce & Gabbana again. I mean, everyone's dropped them. Uh, every Chinese e-commerce site has dropped them. They had a huge fashion show planned. That was what the video was promoting. That was cancelled by the Chinese authorities. Um, it's not just Chinese e-commerce sites that have dropped them. I think Mr. Porter or Netta Porter, one of the two has Netta dropped them. Has dropped yeah. them. Yeah, Lane Crawford like has dropped them as well. Uh, it's just spiraling now. It's really spiraling. Is there, any, is there any way back? Do you think? Do you think there's um, any way back? And after they've cocked up this massively and offended an entire nation. Hmm. I'm not sure. I, I think it will take a really, really long time. They've released a video uh, of a very contrite, um, uh, it's in Italian and, and with them Chinese subtitles. So I've been told that it's, um, I've been told it's weird, but a start on the road to potential <laughs> recovery. Okay. A comment I had from that's, one uh, uh, that's... China PR person. Um, I mean, it will. I think it will take them quite a while because I think 
what you're seeing in a lot of countries, but China in particular is just increasing sensitivity about this kind of stuff. And you see it in India as well. And it's kind of like, I think because these countries are, are sort of emerging into the global economy, they are quite sensitive about how they're seen and portrayed. Um, and they're really powerful now. Uh, and, and then you couple that with, as we've talked about, the backlash economy. <laughs> Uh, and then you end up with them, um, with yeah, with Dolce and Gabbana's. I mean, yeah, a lot of, a lot of problems for them at the moment. I'm curious to know if they are using a PR agency. Um, yes, well, we yes, we should we should probably find out, and they will probably be on our uh, on our crisis roundup next year. Oh, I think both UG no uh, and Nissan will, will feature on that for sure um so yeah i mean yeah i just i don't i don't have a lot of sympathy for dolce and gabbana i think this is just yeah it's pretty remarkable yeah it's remarkable well you saying remarkable i think it's just idiotic really yeah. i think it's unforgivable to yeah. to do something that's so insensitive yeah. uh it's like well who i don't honestly I, I can't even imagine the meeting where that happened unless there was a load of 12 year olds in there it's like no maturity no consideration it's it's yeah I, I, I it's baffling utterly baffling yeah yeah oh and um apparently in the video shanghai was written in japanese characters i forgot that bit so, oh really yeah it's, 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 it's not it's not not just yeah they really got it all out so maybe <laughs> it's yeah, almost like you if, if you're sitting down and saying okay how can we really offend yeah China? and then you know you'd come up with this ad um, I feel like I feel like using the same tone as I would with my children when they've done a really bad job on their homework. And just right. like what what were you thinking? I'm very disappointed in you. Yeah, but I am quite confident, Maya, that your kids would never get it this wrong. <laughs> no, the twelve year old and the ten year old would have done a better job. Yeah, frankly. absolutely. I have more confidence in your kids than I do in dogs. <laughs> at this Thank point. Thank you very much. So do I. Yeah. Just as well. All right. So, um, are we going to talk about PR now? I just, I think we should just wind up really briefly because obviously this is a circular argument where there's a bit, it's an actual, it's now an actual circle of purgatory, isn't it? <laughs> this mm. endless thing about whether PR should call itself PR and really embrace being public relations or whether we should just be going JFDI, let's just do, you know, the integrated thing and do whatever clients need us to do to solve their business problems, regardless of whether we would call that PR or not. So we've had uh, MC Saatchi PR, which is now MC Saatchi Public Relations to great fanfare. Mm -hmm. uh, we've had Golin repositioning itself and re-embracing PR, although I think they were one of the first to, so they weren't PR a few years ago. So this is, you know, come round again, around, mm -hmm so mm -hmm. uh you know this well both approaches both approaches were going yay we're pr go pr i love pr and also uh, actually we don't the label just doesn't seem mm. relevant now because of the type of work we're doing both uh, have had you know been supported and um and derided in equal measure i think that that yeah. whole we are we are pr team pr whoop, yeah. whoop. it's like i I don't know. I, I, it's kind of exhausting. Right. Yeah, I find it tiresome. I mean, I don't think any of these positions are mutually exclusive. Like, you know, I, I mean, and we've, you know, Paul has written about this extensively and he wrote a really great long read on it 
public relations now more than ever last year, where he, he, he made the case, as he has done many times, that that public relations covers you know, all relationships with the public, and therefore you, you can call yourself integrated marketing or strategic comms, and really that's all a part of public relations. Um, I understand agencies have a business development agenda. I think that's the, the kind of crucial thing here for, from their perspective is they're thinking, well, how can we best sell ourselves to clients? And a lot of it will depend on who those clients are. Are they comms directors? Are they PR managers? Are they CMOs? And what do those clients want to buy? Do they want to buy something called a PR agency or something called an integrated marketing agency? But I do think to a certain extent, as you've alluded to, it's, it's almost a question of uh, semantics in a way, because, I mean, everyone's just doing the same things, really. You know, the actual yeah. substance no, of what people yeah. are doing is not that dissimilar. Um, I do take I do take John Hughes's point though at Golin that if you search I mean this is very basic but it's like what is your in into a company right if the search the like millions of search results if you put public relations into Google and there's like a, a handful if you put integrated communication so it's like what mm. are, are we what if, if we if you want a relationship if you want a new relationship with a company it's like PR is as good a way of, as any of describing yourself because that is what they're looking for initially and then once you're in of course you know the I mean the kind of you know the the, the Golin headline I think was sort of uh, I think they picked the wrong thing slightly because actually that what they've done is invest really really heavily in all this brand new data analytics stuff which uh, they're going to show me in a couple of weeks which will change what they can achieve for clients in, in quite hard business terms but PR is still there in, in to be able to solve those business problems with all these new tools they've got at their disposal, thanks to, you know, tech innovation. So yeah, it's, but, it, yeah, but I mean, again, I'd say I don't see those things as mutually exclusive. I would well, think no. that good, strong data and analytics, like many firms are rolling out, not just Golan. No, uh, loads of them are now. Are, I mean, everyone's doing different things. That's the thing. Are simply a, a requirement now for public relations. And I think Golan was i think the timing didn't work for them coming after mnc Saatchi. i just feel like there was a level of fatigue in the market that didn't help them yeah no i think um, you're totally right and i think perhaps the sort of progressive thing you know and i can understand why they say that because they're trying to differentiate themselves from the fact that pr has kind of become synonymous with the sort of commoditized media relations and publicity and and not really what the, the full breadth and depth of public relations as you know we would define it so hence the the the, the sort of move to to tag it as p as progressive but then of course you're kind of saying well if we're progressive then everyone else is backward and that will annoy people um but i think they're fine with that i think they're quite happy to to take to stake out a positioning that is a little bit provocative um uh but you know, I, I can confidently say that this argument and discussion was was we will have again in um, five years' time. Uh, yes, it's not I, it's not going to go away. I remember yeah. writing a piece in my like this previous life on the on the other publication. I remember writing a piece literally eighteen years ago, saying PR is not just fluff or spin. I mean, that was literally my headline, and yeah. it's we are now nearly twenty years later. 
still having the same discussion about yeah, no, what, I've written it. I mean, what the understanding of what yeah. is in the market. Or yeah. Yes. And I, I don't understand because I actually think it's really clear what, sorry, I just dropped something, but it's really clear what public relations is. I, you know, I don't see why it's so hard for people to define or, 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 or to understand. Um, uh, I think, you know, the industry does, gets, gets a pretty hard, um, you know, has had a hard time in the mainstream media because it's often lumped in with fairly shady practices, but um, it's not really that hard to define or understand. Um, and yeah, I've written it, you know, wherever I've, I've been covering public relations, this, this story and this question always, always seems to come up. Um, yeah, so it is tiresome for us. <laughs> <laughs> it's because we're just jaded old hacks who've been doing this yeah. for too long. Exactly. Well, I'm jaded. You're quite, I think, positive. I'm still it's slightly great. more excited about everything PR. Yeah. But no, it's, yeah, it's it's only because we love the industry and know what it is capable of that this is frustrating for us, I think. Do we? It's okay. I do. Right. right. Okay. Heart, yeah. heart eyes emoji to everybody. Uh, all right. Well, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Speak for yourself. So it's literally chalk and cheese, isn't it? <laughs> Thank you all for listening. You've been listening to The Echo Chamber. Brought to you by The Homes Report and produced by Marketeers. Sponsored by The Bullet Group. Putting you in tomorrow's conversations today. Today.